Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosowski, and I'm here with my favorite critic and co-host, Courtney Small. Hello. First official day of TIFF. Yes. Welcome to uh, the second, our second show of TIFF 19 and officially the opening day, opening night of the Toronto International Film Festival for the 2019 edition. We have a guest. So what I should tell you is that we're going to focus on the Canadian features at the Toronto Film Festival. And there's a, a number of them having the world premieres and uh, all sorts of wonderfulness is happening uh, across these ten, next 10 days. And so just for us, special, we got a filmmaker. She flew in from Halifax. And first we're going to talk to Heather Young, who made a fabulous film called Murmur. And Murmur... And if you if this one doesn't affect you, you have no heart. It's about a woman. Uh, she's about sixty years years old. She's completing her community service in an animal shelter, following a DUI. Um, so she takes care of the animals, and she she really loves the work. And then she gets more and more attached to the animals, especially since really she has no one else. Once she steps outside, uh, she has no people support. So. The animals sort of step in. What I uh, wanted to to just first say, Heather, was you know as described in in your uh, write up, it's it's called it's basically a best described as a docu fiction hybrid, which is a really interesting. Now, it's a very interesting way to work, and it has certain ways that make the play, film play out. Right, certain the ideas play out, and. Tell me, was, did that come from the film, the subject matter, or, you know, which came first, that kind of docudrama? Um, yeah, it basically um, started with my short films. Um, I started working in a kind of hybrid between documentary and fiction. Um, several years ago, uh, I made a short film called Howard and Jean that uh, was just basically about my mother and her relationship with her elderly chihuahua. <laughs> and um, that was when I, I started moving more towards the, the hybrid documentary fiction um, work. And uh, I really kind of enjoyed that and, and moved a bit further toward that with my next two shorts. Um, and because, you know, I was making the leap from, from shorts to to features, um, I didn't want to to change the way I was working too much right away because there's already so many big changes that you have to kind of adapt to when you're moving from shorts to features. So I thought, well, you know, I've been working in this doc fiction hybrid kind of zone in my shorts and, and you know, I've been enjoying that and I, I felt like it was working for me. So I decided to keep that going for my first feature. Um, and uh, to kind of help me make that adjustment. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it really did start with my shorts, but um, but we kind of expanded on it for the feature. So yeah. it works really well. It, it it really gives us an interesting perspective because if it had been done any other way, there would have been a different emotional impact. I think, and I think that a lot of the film is about emotional impact. But I also I really admire the way you, that you shot it, like the style that you have. And I'm particularly fascinated 
um, by the way that you captured the main character in the frame, and and your choice of using you know the frame a still frame with action coming in and out of it. That's really interesting. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, my director of photography, uh, Jeff Leeton, and I, uh, we did a lot of planning um, before the film. And uh, we made a few choices. Um, One of those choices was to shoot in the four by three aspect ratio, which is kind of a smaller um, frame than what we are kind of used to seeing nowadays it's usually the you know the wider 2.35 or the 16 by 9 so um we chose that aspect ratio because i I felt like it's um it's appropriate to to frame a human face with um it's kind of like a portrait frame is what i've been calling it um so um because i really wanted to focus on you know this one character and really show her emotional journey and and show you know the reactions in her face to to what's going on around her um we chose that that aspect ratio to kind of really focus in on on her in in a portrait type of way um and then also uh when i'm filming i like to have um a restriction um a lot of the time i i like to kind of place a restriction on on myself it kind of allows you to to come up with like different ideas and creative solutions that you wouldn't necessarily think of otherwise. So um, my DP and I decided that uh, the camera wouldn't move. Um, so yeah, every shot is kind of locked locked off and, and uh, doesn't, you know, there's no panning or uh, tilting or moving of any kind yeah. or zooming or anything like that. So um, and yeah, with, uh, with a frame that's locked off like that, it kind of... Um, lends itself to allowing the action to kind of move in and out of the frame, which I, I find really interesting because it kind of um, makes you think about what's going on around you um, and what's going on around the character and um, not necessarily only exclusively exclusively what you're looking at. So I find that really interesting. It kind of can make you think about, um, you know, different aspects of the story that you wouldn't think of otherwise. Um and also, I just felt like with with having the camera being very still, um, it kind of, you know, lends itself to this particular film um, in the sense that, you know, the main character is very um, lonely and, and isolated and, and is living basically a quiet life, you know, where she's not interacting with a lot of people. So just having that, that stillness um, in the frame, I felt kind of reflected her um, her experience as as being kind of alone in this kind of quiet atmosphere where no one is interacting with her. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And and what about the choice of the where you put her in the frame? Yeah. Um, I'll, give, I'll just give everyone a hint. There's an interesting <laughs> way that she's presented within the frame. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of that was really instinctual. Um, Jeff and I didn't storyboard. I don't generally storyboard uh, for my films. I like to um, have enough time on set to to really think about where we're going to put the camera, um, especially when, you know, we were locking off every frame. So we knew that we weren't going to be able to adjust the frame, you know, mid shot if we wanted to change it. So when you know that going in, you have to really kind of commit t- to the shot that you choose. And and because of that, I, I knew I wanted to really feel good about every shot and really feel like every shot was what I wanted it to be. So um, 
so because we had um, we had enough time and we weren't super rushed while we were shooting, we were um, Jeff and I were really able to to kind of you know walk around the scene and and just decide what felt right. Um, and you know we have a lot of of close ups of of Shan McDonald who plays Don in the film. Um, and you know I I really wanted to to show her face a lot because, um, I think her face is amazing for one thing. Um, and, and, uh, very expressive and very interesting. And, and also just because the, the film really revolves around her and her experience. And, and, you know, I wanted the audience to have as much empathy for her as, as possible. And I think by being able to really study her face, um, you know, to see her reactions, um, that that helps with um the audience being able to like empathize with her with her story so so that's why yeah we chose we chose to try to focus on her face but also focus on her face in in interesting ways to kind of keep that subject matter of you know Donna's face to keep that interesting throughout the film yeah yeah but there's also like like this kind of visual metaphor that starts to happen when you know because she's at this certain place in the frame and tends to be at certain mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. And then when the situation kind of changes, then her face starts to appear, you know, in, diff- in a different spot. And so I just, no, I'm not going to ruin that, but yeah, there's, <laughs> a, there's a really interesting effect that really, really makes us um, have more empathy. You know, oh, right. good. That's there's good one thing um, that you had mentioned that I actually want to dive deeper into and you were talking about isolation because in murmur and i would say in fish and in milk you have women who are going through a change um, and that change leads to isolation Mm -hmm. and i find in in those films thematically you present an interesting beauty and sadness to isolation so i wanted to know a how you know what does isolation mean to you in, in the cinematic landscape and uh, how do you find such unique ways to to bring i guess diversity to it mm-hmm. that's a good question um yeah i think isolation is definitely a theme that i've kind of come back to several times in my work um and specifically again like you mentioned specifically with women but even more specifically with that um i i seem to be kind of obsessed with the the story of the the single mother um and and how how being a single mother can can lead to isolation um and i think you know that that comes comes back to well my interest in that subject you know comes back to myself being raised by by a single mother um and and being also an only child. Um, so I guess, yeah, in Murmur, um, the main character is a single mother with an only, only child. And I, I think when, when one parent has an only child, that can become kind of a, an intense relationship because you, you end up being, you know, the, the only immediate family for each other, you know, you, you really in some ways only have each other. And, um, and, yeah, so I feel like that can that can kind of be um be an intense relationship, but um also I think, you know, with this being a single mother can have um you know, a lot of a lot of struggles that are kind of not not necessarily brought to light a lot of the time. And um if certainly in murmur, you know, if being isolated from her only child, um that that 
kind of becomes an all-encompassing isolation in that sense that um, she she really kind of lost the main connection she had to to another human being. So, um, but yeah, I think I think I keep coming back to to loneliness and isolation in my work in terms of in terms of the single mother experience, but, um, but, but loneliness and isolation, I, I think is also kind of a universal theme that a lot of people, um, can relate to. So, um, certainly in, in Murmur, um, I feel like, you know, the main character, her real desire is, is to have a connection and to, um, you know, to connect with people and to have someone to love and, and to care for. Um, and, and, struggling through her isolation in that sense um i feel like everyone can kind of relate to to the idea that you know that she wants to have you know someone to connect to and someone to love so um hopefully because you know being lonely is kind of a universal theme that people can understand hopefully yeah it 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 can um increase the the level of connection to the film and and empathy for the main character and growing up in a single parent household myself, I I noticed I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it felt like a a weird thematic trilogy. Whereas in <laughs> Milk, you have the the young woman who discovers she's pregnant mm-hmm. and it's going to be a single mother and has to deal with that. And then Fish, you have the the well, the children are here now and mm-hmm. she has to deal with it on her own. And then you have Murmur, where the children is, is grown, but they don't want to connect to mm-hmm. you anymore. And it's it was just I don't know if that was intentional, but I just found it really. Interesting, but to talk about uh, continuing the thing with isolation, animals play a prominent role, especially in this film, mm-hmm. and they're either a metaphor for for change or they're a symbol of companionship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just want to know if you could elaborate more on like what is it about animals in general that you find so fascinating? Because mm-hmm. don't they say in, in cinema you're not supposed to work with animals? <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, you know, never work with animals or kids. So that's uh, that's usually the rule in cinema, but um, I keep breaking both. So, <laughs> um, but one thing that um, is kind of interesting that that helps helps me work with animals is that um, I don't ask the animals to do anything that they wouldn't normally do. So they don't have to like learn any tricks or um, you know perform on command or anything like that. So that's one thing that does help me work with animals. Um, it, in the sense that I'm just kind of filming them and doing whatever they naturally would do. So that's, um, that's helpful <laughs> in that sense. Um, but yeah, I, I find, um, that people's relationship with, with animals can, can reveal kind of aspects of human behavior that are, that are quite interesting. Um, yeah, in the sense, um, with murmur, basically, um, you know, she ends up kind of replacing one addiction with, with a new addiction. Um, that's, that's kind of one aspect of the, the theme of the animals. So, you know, she, she's been having trouble with, with alcohol and, and, um, you know, drinking sometimes, you know, in excess and, and getting into some trouble there. So, um, when she, when she kind of cuts that off and decides to, to quit that, she, um, she, that's when she kind of leans further into acquiring more and more animals. Um, and then of course there's the, 
um, the estrangement with her daughter um, in the film, you know, she she's a, a character. She's a person that that has a lot of love to give. You know, she has a lot of affection and, and love and and kind of a caretaking nature. And she needs somewhere to put that, you know, she she needs somewhere to put that energy and and the animals kind of fill that role for her. So she's able to um, to to put that energy on, onto her pets now. And, you know, in terms of it being like a new addiction, you know, I think every time she she acquires an animal, she kind of, you know, gets a little surge of, of joy and, and happiness and, and affection. Um, but of course, you know, that that doesn't that doesn't last because, you know, it's, 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 it is just a pet, you know, it's not a, not a fully fulfilling human relationship. So, so I think that's kind of what drives her to continue to, to try to feel that, uh, that surge of joy again by, by getting another pet and then getting another pet. Um, um, so, you know, she ends up kind of, uh, in this cycle of, of trying to fill a void that, that uh, is kind of impossible to to fill in this way, um, but yeah, I've always found animals fascinating. I've always been an animal person as well, <laughs> so um, you know. And and in terms of cinema, it's it's really it's really what it reveals um, about the human behavior that that I find interesting. So yeah, I do one quick one if that's okay. Right. Yeah, for for Murmur, you are the writer, director, editor, and producer. That's many hats to wear. Uh, Only one of the producers. Only one of the the producers. So uh, in making the leap from short to feature, which hat was the the hardest for you to to navigate? Absolutely, editor. Uh, Yeah. Um, So... Um, you know, each had their challenges, certainly. Um, moving from shorts to features, it, it is challenging. Um, I, I found the writing, you know, challenging, although it's kind of, the, you know, the same process, just longer. <laughs> um, and the directing, I thought the shoot was going to be very, very difficult because, you know, we were shooting for 25 days and, uh, you know, I'd never shot for that long before and I thought I was going to be totally destroyed and exhausted, but... Um, actually that was the most fun I think I had throughout the whole process <laughs> was the shooting. So that, that was a surprise. It went better than I thought. Um, but I was, yeah, I was the editor. I've been editing my short films, but that was definitely the thing that I found to be the, the biggest difference going from shorts to features was the edit. Um, so, you know, I'm used to, you know, maybe shooting for three or four days and then, you know, cutting a film that ends up being 10 minutes or 14 minutes or, you know, somewhere in that range. Um, but, you know, we shot for 25 days and we had uh, 49 and a half hours of footage. Um, and I was the only editor on, on the feature. Um, so just uh, kind of wading through all of that footage on your own was, uh, it was very challenging. And um, I felt like I was kind of drowning in it, uh, for, for, for a while there at the beginning. Um, and, but, you know, once I reached kind of the assembly stage, so once I kind of had a rough cut of every scene and kind of plunked them all along on the timeline, and, you know, of course it was way too long and very rough, but at that point I, I felt like I could, I could see the story and I felt like I really had an instinct about what I wanted to take out at that point. So I remember the the very first day um, after I I finished the assembly, um, it was three hours long (laughs) and um, I cut an hour on the first day. (laughs) So uh, after, yeah, it felt, it felt really good. Yeah. So after, um, after I reached that assembly 
stage, I, I felt uh, like a, a weight had been lifted and I, I moved a lot faster after that. But um, yeah, getting to that point was a struggle for sure. It ended up being you know, one of my favorite films of the festival. So, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, congratulations. So uh, we've been talking to Heather Young from the film Murmur. Uh, her, her first feature. Yes, first feature. <laughs> which blew us away. And it's op- the opening night of this film. It's a world premiere is on Friday, tomorrow, Friday, uh, September the 6th at Jackman Hall, the AGO at 8.45 p.m. So hopefully you can still get tickets because things sell out. <laughs> and there's two other screenings on uh, as well. So go to tiff.net to get all the screening times and ticket information. Okay, and Courtney and I will be back in just a sec. Okay, you're back with Frameline, and I'm Barbara Goslowski, and here with Courtney Small. And we're going to talk about some of the Canadian films that will be showing during the festival, the Toronto International Film Festival. There's, uh, we're going to talk about some of the Canadian stuff. I said that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And these are some of the highlights. And there's a few, quite a few of them. So it's like a really good year for Canadian cinema. So the only documentary so far we're going to talk about, because of embargoes and things like that, is uh, a thing called, a thing, a movie called This Is Not a Movie. And it's by Young Chang. And we know Young Chang. You know, he's established as a filmmaker, uh, you know, a great documentary filmmaker. So This Is Not a Movie follows veteran journalist Robert Fisk, internationally renowned, you know, foreign correspondent, in fact, a Middle East correspondent. And he's had quite a long and storied career. So we're following him. And what happens in the film is that you get a mix of Fisk in the present and Fisk. uh, In fact, the film starts with uh, one of his pieces that he he presented when... um, and from 1980. So we, it starts and we are immediately taken into the streets of Iraq when the war, where there is a war going on there. And so that's, that's really interesting. That's part of Fisk's way of presenting his dispatches from the Middle East. But it's also what Yang Chang chooses, you know, to do to us as the viewer. We're like instantly put into the middle of the fighting. And then as people discuss the situation in the Middle East, and Fisk especially gives his opinion as someone who has uh, worked there for, for so long and who lives there and, it, and has to, like, deal with all these things going on and massacres that he's witnessed and all, all sorts of things. You know, he's trying to pu- give us a better sense and I, I think maybe putting it t- together for himself as well. Yeah, it's a it's a really wonderful documentary, and I think one of the things I I loved about this film is that it forces you to really reflect on journalism today and the flaws within it. Absolutely, uh, and and we're not talking about like fake news, what have you. We're talking about in terms of reporting versus entertainment style reporting, and how everything is in sound bites. And um, at one point, Fist talks about how when he is in 
reporting on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, depending on what he's reporting that day, people will say, oh, well, you're pro-Israeli or you're pro-Palestinian. Like how everyone's choosing a side. And he's like, I'm just reporting what I'm seeing, you know, and how we, we've kind of lost a lot of those nuances. And he makes reference to, I think, when he was at the Times and Murdoch, was it? I think Rupert Murdoch had bought the Times yes. and then started to edit the type of news that was coming out and yes including preventing pieces Mm -hmm. from being published and that's something that we're still seeing today if you think about a lot of the the news that you consume it is being filtered in newsrooms prior so it's a really fascinating film and I, i think it does a good job of pointing out some of his flaws but at the same time showing that even despite his flaws he's essentially the a symbol of what journalism should be Yes, exactly. The, the higher reaches of it, um, his aspirations, he, they are high. And he develops a sort of philosophy about his role, which is to always stand up for the people who've had their lives destroyed. Mm-hmm. And in that way, he, that's his argument that he can't possibly on, be on one side or the other because the position of the people who are or affected the most always changes. But, you know, I, I one really interesting thing that I think you brought up, which, you know, people, when you see it and then you can think about this yourself, is the nature of, is human nature and war. And it brings up this really very important point that there are so many wars and there always have been. So what is it about human beings that we not only allow this, is there something in us that is asking for it? Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's a really crucial question. I think it's, it's really crucial now, as you say, in the context of the way journalism is affected now. So, yeah, This Is Not a Movie is fabulous, and congrats to Yang Cheng on that one. So we're going to go to some fictions. Sure. Now, talking to Heather Young about Murmur, and I was talking about her style, right? Her st- and I didn't say the word realism, but it was sort of like lingering in the air, mm-hmm. right? And possibly I should have because maybe it would make more sense now, you know, if I had said it in the middle of that and then, then say that I noticed this pattern of this this style called realism, so neo-realism. Like realism was a style of of presenting fiction from a past era and now you have or it's it's something you know when you have a docudrama Mm -hmm. right but with this focus on characters and this like very carefully focused and simply shot like there's a strategy there that focuses on the individual i'm noticing that in other films like the next one we're going to talk about which is black conflicts uh by nicole dorsey so i'm noticing that it's the women Yes. That are doing this, right? And they're keeping things stylistically very simple, but that doesn't mean there's not a visual strategy. And the visual strategy tends to be, you know, um, in in their own ways to focus on a person. In this case, there are two people. I should tell you that it's it's weaving together two seemingly separate stories um, about uh, a young basically good, disillusioned teen girl and an increasingly troubled, alienated man. And it's set in 1980s Newfoundland. And what happens is that, you know, as it goes from story to story, it's um, 
things are unfolding in time. That's what happens in Heather Young's film Murmur. That's what happens in Black Conflux. And in, in the next film that we're going to talk about is everything unravels in time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that, like having a cup of co- making a cup of coffee, like some, some, sometimes that means the simple things that like, the character is doing actually do reveal a lot about the character. Depending on when the filmmaker chooses to slow down on that detail. But otherwise, you know, we see the character in real time and uh, functioning that way. And that sometimes adds a suspense of its own. Yeah, it creates a lot of great tension. Yeah, in this film, there's a lot of tension. And especially as the two stories look like they're coming together, you know, because there's, there's, you know, there's certain things happening on one side. And in fact, in a weird way, it's about how this sort of sense of, of their own sexuality is unraveling in different ways in each storyline. Mm-hmm. They're both having trouble with that. It's just that it's going to lead to something different. Even though the story is suggesting they're going to come together, which is actually terrifying. Yeah, you, you don't... Ex- Part of you is hoping that they don't meet, but you know it's inevitable that they that they will. The way how the trajectory is going, but then at the same time, there's interesting aspects and parallels to to both cases. Like I found in the young teenage girl's story, the the boys that she interacts with are not the best type, even though they might seem like decent. Yeah, on the, yeah, on the yeah. surface, you, you kind of see the seeds being planted for what might eventually turn into the guy on the other side, you right. know, in terms of just the way how the objectification of women, the not really necessarily treating as equals type of thing. And then on his side, he doesn't know how to handle genuine women who are nice, caring, intellectual. You know, he, he has they have to in his mind, be loose women for him to interact. And that's the but only then way. He, he hates them but then he hates it for, for that as well, yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of like an incel mm-hmm. kind of in personality in the yeah. way that person is unraveling. Um, and she she's sort of heading for the more guy-guy kind of guys, the old-fashioned guy-guy mm-hmm. kind of guys that never even tried to understand women, never had to. Yeah. Women just, well, young women, you know. There was a certain tendency for, for a certain like, for innocent girls just to not really th- realize what was going on with th- these guys that they were dealing with. Yeah, and and even you could say like, the the young innocent women that are, are associate with her kind of enable that type of culture unknowingly. Yeah. So it, it's a very layered film that is filled with a lot of tension, and it's one of those that. You're you're a little unnerved as you're watching it, but then when you walk away and you think about it, you're like, "Wow, that was a really good film." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and part of the tension, and not just you know what I was saying in terms of the unraveling of detail, you know, and 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 staying in that kind of realistic realm, it's also because there's this visual thing going on, like a metaphor going on, where we're always it, the focus is always on looking, someone looking at you know someone mm-hmm. watching something yeah. or someone you know and so that because those that kind of thing is a trope of like a thriller right mm-hmm. watching the watching you know and then the tension in there already building up with that and it's like black conflicts is great yeah so <laughs> so please see that one too 
Okay, so uh, the next one is The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. And this is written and directed by Kathleen Hepburn and Al Maija Tailfeathers. And I apologize if I screwed that name up. Um, Kathleen Hepburn was at TIFF with Never Steady, Never, Never Still. Still. Yep. And so now she they're working together. And uh, Miss Tailfeathers, she is acting in it. So it's a story of um, – it's a very simple story. It's actually yeah. an incident uh, that th- the focus just comes in really close onto the details. So, again, it's another one that I would argue is – is working in a sort of realistic way. Oh yes, very, very much so. Yeah, you have and two two women that you know randomly meet on the street one day, and um, one of them, Rosie, is literally barefoot and pregnant in, in, in the rain, and um, the other the guy screaming in the background. Yes, you hear the the haunting screamings of the back. We never quite see. No, we never see him. But man, can that those. <laughs> Those yells of his are so scary. Mm-hmm. And the the, um, the other woman, I believe her name was uh, Alia. I have to Isla. Isla. She so Isla, I guess, is a slightly more upwardly mobile. Both women um, have indigenous background, indigenous roots, but completely vastly different lifestyles. And Alia tries to help Rosie, who's clearly in a d- domestic um, violence situation. And it's a very slow burn film in terms, and you're seeing how Rosie may not necessarily be at that stage yet where she's ready to accept help. I know, and the focus on the details of them, because it's focused just on the incident, it allows us to make, get into her head. Once again, the camera is like really focused on her and following her and her point, her face, a lot on her face. And, and when she's walking, the camera's like sees, it's right behind her and you see what she sees. But as you get into this situation where she may not want help, even though we all reacted to a situation, her situation in a certain way and of certain things that we want to help her, just like the the character we start to um, see her behavior more closely. And then as it's becoming clear that she's really struggling with the idea of going to, to get help. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it might even refuse it because, she, you know, she keeps waffling and doesn't say yes or no. It's like it's it, it really <clears throat> makes me think about those times when, you know, we're, to- we're always told <clears> – <throat> Excuse me. We're always told about how sometimes battered women think they deserve it, mm-hmm. and not being able to understand. You know, as someone who doesn't get battered, not being able to understand that. But it, with this film, you may not understand it. You may get an inkling of of her point of view and her feelings, um, but at least you have compassion, no matter what she does. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. The whole thing's heartbreaking. It, it is, and I found the film um, frustrating, and and I'm going to use that term as a compliment because the whole time you're watching this thing unfold, you're thinking just just take the help, just yeah. take the help, and then you start to realize that you're as a viewer 
basically embodying everything that Alia is going through. Like she's trying her best to ensure that this woman gets help and can't understand why this woman won't. And by the time you walk away from this film, you realize you've just been put through the experience where you've, you're not the, the battered individual. You get to see what's the results of it, but you're in that position of someone who, who wants to help, but you realize there's limitations to it. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you have to let the victims kind of get to the point where they're ready to accept it. And that's the, the frustrating part but it's it's a necessary yeah which is more like finally getting to understand what workers at, at special shelters and things mm-hmm. have to do which is to accept it yeah. and that's the hardest thing um but this film puts it like into a different focus for us and i really appreciated it for that but mm-hmm. also it's it's just absolutely like it just draws you right in instantly and uh, you called it a slow burn, right? Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, let me just switch slightly. Sure. Um, because I did watch a film by a woman that was not working in that tradition. So I'm just letting you all know that if that if neorealism doesn't sound interesting to you, which I hope that's not the case, but mm-hmm. if you need a break from neorealism, there's a film by Ashling Chin Yi. And uh, it's her first film, and it's The Rest of Us. And it's a really bizarre little... (laughs) It's a really bizarre situation, which makes for an interesting experience for us watching it. And the situation is that a mother and her daughter um, find out that the, the father just died. Oh, okay. And he has a new family, a woman and a daughter. And so during, due to certain circumstances, the first pair of uh, mother and daughter take in the second pair of mother and daughter. Oh, okay. And there's these, this is sort of interesting undertow, like it's not an undertow, it's like a, a this interesting force that seems to be operating underneath, like everyone's trying to maintain composure, everyone's trying to, you know, but but then there's like these breaks where there's this like real anger bubbling there. And it's like you're just waiting. But it's also weirdly funny. Oh, okay. You know, it sort of breaks it up with humor, but you know you're going to go back to that. And it's it's like it's only a couple of the characters and you'd be surprised which two. And they're not even related. You know, not the mother daughter mm-hmm. pair. So they're like there's two people that are just having struggling more than the other two with this and you just wonder like that's the film. It's like waiting and waiting to see, okay, how's this how's this gonna turn out? How is this going to come you know, everything come into play? Oh well, that sounds very fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so that's the rest of us. Ashling Chen Yi. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, I'll keep on the comedy aspect slightly and I will talk briefly about the last porno show directed by Kier Paputz. Um, he did uh, The Rainbow Kids a few years ago which focused on a, a, a young man with Down syndromes and this f- tale is, I'd call it a dark dramedy. Um, it starts off as like a, a dark comedy about a man who's a struggling actor who ends up inheriting his deceased father's old porno theater and his whole intention is to to sell the theater sell the property but the property has tenants 
uh, that live above the theater. Um, so he's waffling about about that. And then he, the theater has a lot of, I guess, diehard customers that come back. So he agrees to open, reopen the theater while um, it, he's trying to sell it. But in doing so, it triggers a lot of deep and dark memories of his time in the theater with his father. Um, and in many ways, he tries to work through that while also preparing for um, a possible film role. So it's a very interesting film. I think it's one of those um, dark comedies where the darker it got and the more dramatic, I think the better it is. Because I think the comedy is a lot, to me, it felt more shock value than anything. But when it actually gets to the really dark, disturbing moments and you start to see what he went through and how it, we, we talked about in Black Conflicts, the, how the male misinterpreting uh, how to relate to women and that kind of happens here. But one thing that Papus does, which I found is interesting, is he never makes the father a straight out villain. Like you can see, you clearly see that the father had the best intentions, but they were misguided. And in those misguided things, it, it, it did damage to the son in several ways. So he wasn't the best father. He, he made a lot of mistakes that he really shouldn't have made, but you still walk away with a, a sense of hope and compassion. And for this film to pull that off by the end, I thought was um, quite interesting. Yeah. It so, sounds like it. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's definitely one to um, check out. And I, I'll talk briefly, um, Getting back to female filmmakers, I watched Jordan River Anderson, The Messenger, by um, famed Canadian filmmaker... Alanisa Bomsoen. Yes, and I, I, I've lost track. I think this is her third film. It's, yeah, it's way over. It's over. She's prolific. And this one talks about um, Jordan An River Anderson, who was a young boy that was born with a particular unique medical condition. And his short time on earth impacted a lot of people and his death um well i guess well his time on earth sparked this huge debate in terms of health care because he had to be essentially live out of a hospital for most of it and if he was going to be taken out they wanted to put him in a facility that was close to a hospital the issue became who would pay for it so the provincial government said well he's an indigenous child so it has to be the federal government the federal government's like well it's happening in manitoba so it's provincial and that sparked a whole um, kerfuffle, and eventually what came out of that was the Jordan Principle Act, which um, states that the child must come first. So regardless of where the child is, whatever government is first contacted, so if you can contact the provincial government, they have to do with it first, and then eventually the federal can step in and take over the cost, what have you. But getting to that point was a huge struggle. And this film details that struggle. And then it shows even when the act was in place, indigenous children were still not benefiting from the act that was supposed to be put in there. And again, it's another film where you see the darker side of Canadian politics, but yet there's still optimism and hope. And you see the families who have, are now benefiting from from Jordan's sacrifice. You know, So that was... Uh, a quite a powerful film and mm -hmm. you know she's a filmmaker that she's made so many great films that it it slots in perfectly with a lot of her other recent works yeah and she oh you know she always gives us a really really special insight into into these issues into indigenous living and lives and and people 
Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I look forward to seeing that one. Mm-hmm. It's always she. She always, like I said, it just amazes with with the way that she's got this compassion and humanity, um, <clears throat> and ability to get people to talk. That is special. It's really important. Yep. Okay. Okay, so hopefully that's enough to get you guys going. We're going to open it up and uh, talk some more about, uh, you know, all the other people that are here. Oh, yeah, there's tons of <laughs> films. I mean, there's tons of other Canadian films, but there's, the, yeah, the slate, so, is, there's well, what, 300 films? Mention, yeah, we can mention a couple more Canadian next time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, let's talk about some of um, some of the other people from other places in the world yeah. that don't make films as good as we do. Oh, of course not. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're going to have a, a special yeah, we'll do another. We did one last year, and, yeah. it's, and people seem to like it, so maybe we'll do another one. Yeah, we'll do a, we'll do a special podcast-only version, and so look out for that on yeah. iTunes. And then we'll, you know, next week's regular version, will, again, will still be more TIFF Talk. Oh, well. yeah. There's lot, always lots. Yeah. So no worries. Anyway, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Oh.